0: Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show, Twin Peaks, and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who have seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we're looking at the 21st overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 20. Often known, depending where you look, as Season 2, Episode 13, Episode 21, or with the German regionalization team named Checkmate. I'm your host, John. In Episode 20, Major Briggs is caught between where he was and where he is as he attempts to explain the space adjacent location he's been the past few days. Bobby blows off Shelley to play Civil War with Ben, James gets entrapped by Evelyn and Malcolm, Mike is accosted by Nadine, Ed and Norma finally rekindle things, and Controlling Hank gets pummeled by Nadine, Dick and Andy look into Little Nicky, and Ernie sets up a bye with Jean Renault and the sting goes well until he sweats his wire on fire. Cooper trades himself for hostages, is witness to one of the show's best monologues, and kills Renault thanks to a gun Diner Denise brings to him. Then the power goes out, Leo wakes up, and a dead man points to Wyndham Earl's next move. So, looking at the show from a holistic wide lens, what questions are we left with? Well, how is the Lodge lore solidified here? What are we to make of all the forced sexuality as persuasion? How is Jean Renault right and wrong about Cooper? And what does it mean that Earl's Veiled Arrival works hand-in-hand hand with electricity? So this episode is written by Harley Payton and directed by Todd Holland. And being directed by Todd Holland, that's the eighth episode in a row of Twin Peaks being directed by a returning director, beginning with Leslie Lincoln gladder over in coma, you know, before the killer reveal. And um, Holland is, is the only new-to-season-two director to return. Um, but, you know, th- this is his second of two episodes. Um, so, so the tone change here that has happened since episode 17 was not really contributed to by needing to, you know, onboard new directors or anything. You know, you can't, you can't really blame this as a complete continuity problem because it's just not. Um, you know, the change of direction really does come from the fact that they wanted to make shorter storylines after episode 16. And um, looking with uh, looking at the upcoming episode slate of you know uh, episodes written by a solo writer, we've got Barry Pullman getting two, Tricia Brock gets one, and Scott Frost gets one. But this is the last one that Harley Peyton will get to write alone. All the rest of them will be like last episode where he's co-writing with you know Robert Engels or you know sometimes Frost as well. It's just interesting to see Peyton on display all by himself because all his proclivities are right here. You know, he, he's, uh, he's copped in, in reflections, et cetera, to, you know, falling a little too deeply in love with the absurdity. And, um, you know, that, that's kind of like the, uh, you know, the, it just cut scene where Andy and Dick get caught breaking and entering into the door at orphanage. And there was no way to get it out, get, get them out of trouble besides cutting it, you know, cutting right at the point where they're caught and, you know, ignoring that it ever happened. So, you know, it's, it's there for the fun. It's there for the, oh my gosh, you know, hijinks. And, um, you know, then if you ignore it, then it's just not there. Yeah, <laughs> But then, um, we also get, you know, an every day, once a day kind of monologue from Jean Reno, where, you know, maybe Cooper brought the nightmare. So, you know, we get we get all the stuff that um, that Peyton can bring to Twin Peaks. And it's a really good way to look at specifically what his special sauce was to Twin Peaks. And honestly, there's a lot of great stuff in here, even while explaining how like some of the comedy plot lines strayed a little bit. Peyton was basically the executive producer at this point as well. Um, you know, he gets a midnight phone call from Todd Holland who just got off the phone with David Lynch and um you know, um uh, Peyton recounted this story in Twin Peaks Unwrapped book and also in um Reflections by Brad Dukes. And um and he said Holland told him, you know, I just got off the phone with David and he has all these notes, but my whole day is set for tomorrow morning. I can't really shoot what I planned because of the things he was talking about. Peyton said, Shoot what you planned. I'll handle this. And then he talks to uh, Mark Frost, who is in New Orleans for sure, working on Storyville at the time. And, um, you know, Mar- Mark Frost basically said, you know, he'd call David and handle this. Um, but, you know, the next day, Peyton got a call from Lynch, and uh, Lynch was not happy. And, um, uh, in reflections, he said, you know, this is probably when his and Lynch relationships soured a bit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the question I have though, there is, you know, sure it's Lynch's show, but you know, who can really give notes at 11 a.m. Uh, you know, at, at 11 p.m. The night before the shoot, you know, it's like, I I'm remembering what Lynch said to Lenny Von Dolan that, um. The and recounted in Reflections about, you know, it's like, Lenny, you can't give us a good idea the night before the shoot. The, the, the post is already up, or whatever he said about, you know, a, a different way to show Harold's death, you know, like laying in the orchids rather than hanging. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, <laughs> Lynch kind of already knew. He just, you know, when he's not directing, it's kind of hard for him to pay attention to the process, I guess but the question I have is what were the things that he wanted to reshoot (laughs) or, you know, shoot differently. Um, I mean, it's really tough to say. And, um, I, I kind of wonder if it's the opening sequence. And um, Holland in Twin Peaks Unwrapped said he uh, he basically felt the pressure because the Leland opening that he did with the, uh, with the ceiling tile, you know, like coming through the ceiling tile tunnel and, uh, you know, figuring out where you were that way, um, it was so successful. And he said the whole deep space thing was me, and it was more trying too hard. When the first one was so organic, the second one felt less so, but they still went for it. And um, honestly, they probably went for it because it was more Lodge connected than he thought, possibly. And, um, you know, maybe that's something that Lynch didn't want. The uh, physical portrayal of the White Lodge, him sitting in the, the forested area on a throne. Um, you know, as Lynch has said before season three, he'd never portrayed the Black Lodge anywhere on film. And I would assume that the same instinct would be true for the White Lodge. Um you know, at least back then, I would imagine that's his 100%, um, viewpoint. And it kind of makes sense because, you know, after all, there's a throne that, that, uh, Briggs is sitting on. And in the episode 29 script, you know, Earl thinks he's sitting on a throne where you would claim power, which, you know, maybe that's what Briggs was already sitting in. And it's kind of a callback to that. And, um, You know, decades later, (laughs) uh, Jay and Mills in the Damn Fine TV podcast covering this episode, they were talking about how the starscape felt very much like non-existence. You know, the the star field that um, Cooper goes through in season three. So, you know, I would be... I would be totally understanding if Lynch wanted to kind of redo that whole thing, but I would also be curious if the reshoots had anything to do with the Renault scenes, you know, I mean, there's no hypothesis here, but, um, like I, uh, you know, with the bring the nightmare, like all that stuff, you know, it's like, I wonder if he wanted to kind of maybe talk less there, but, um, you know again i don't I don't really have any reason for it. I just think that's the only other like hefty scene that might be worth a rewrite, but you know who knows? maybe it was just you know Dick and Andy, <laughs> but um You know, talking about the uh, the Jean Reno scenes here, I do have a hypothesis why the James storyline is so maligned in comparison to things like this. You know, we've got Parks being so good, but he's only in three scenes for this whole story arc. He's in the one at the end of episode 17. Um, You know, sure, he's in the picture that um, Bobby takes to Ben and that uh, Audrey brings to Cooper, But then other than that, he's only in, um, what two and a half, uh, two and a half scenes here. And, you know, I know why that is, you know, it's, it was a quick recasting and restructuring of the storylines. This was the, uh, this episode was the last of the heavily, you know, month-long rewritten episodes where they were writing out the Cooper romance with Audrey and writing in the uh, Jean Renault plot. So, you know, maybe maybe they only had so much budget for Parks. Maybe he only had so many days to shoot, um, you know, so they made them count this way. But then we have James being in the Marchland so heavily for, oh, I don't know, five episodes instead of four with only two heavy episodes focused on it and um you know the fifth episode is practically a fake out because it seems like it'll almost end next episode um you know more on that obviously but you know compare comparing and contrasting to the genre no storyline that ends halfway through the uh james's wild (laughs) ride portion um I kind of think maybe that's where viewer patience just instinctively steers away from James at this point. But as far as things that we can prove, um, you know, what's the end result of this episode? It first aired on January 19th to 9.8 million viewers. And um, this is the first time that Twin Peaks had dropped its ratings under 10 million viewers. But Honestly, it was only 0.5 million lower than last week. So it only shattered a half a million viewers per episode, um, this time rather than the, um, the full million viewers that was the pattern in the 1990 episodes before the winter break. And also, I mean, one one way to explain that is possibly because, you know, sure, sure, it was the first episode I didn't watch, so I don't know about preemptions or anything, but it aired only two days after Desert Storm began. So, you know... um I I would say with that kind of stuff around it, you know, it's not too bad that it only lost 500,000 viewers and, um, you know, not only that, but it aired against the golden globes. And I, I understand that the golden globes wasn't quite the, um, cultural force that it, um, you know, like it, it, it didn't have the focus that it does now as far as, you know, being a prestige thing per se. But, um, you know the golden globes was airing up against this episode on um you know turner network or something um i I forget where it aired but um you know like that that episode of golden globes uh we actually get twin peaks winning best drama and uh kyle mclaughlin would go on to win best actor at this episode so you know it's it's interesting that um that's airing up against this episode and um you know who knows maybe that explains a little bit about why you know it lost some viewers too but um who knows i mean cable cable wasn't quite the audience draw that it, it is now and yeah sure i didn't see this episode when it first aired but when i did see it on bravo in 1995 um I found this episode pretty damn compelling, honestly. You know, Renault, the, Renault's gravity made this storyline feel so much more stretched out than um, him just being in two episodes out of four. Uh, you know, I, I was, um, I, I was kind of feeling like this story arc was more like how. Um, episodes 14, 15, and 16 kind of felt like six episodes. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it seemed like it was a bigger thing, which is neat. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of shocked at like the, the sleight of hand that they did to make that happen because I mean, you know, the, the storyline really isn't that big, but you know, here it is, um, having a lot of meaning and gravitas. All right. So here we are. Um, we've looked at, where it was when it was built. We looked at where it was when it aired the first time. And um, now we're going to look at what David Lynch um, made a log lady introduction for it um, back in 1993 after fire walk with me was done and Twin Peaks was dead as a doornail. Margaret says, my husband died in a fire. No one can know my sorrow. My love is gone yet. I feel near him. Sometimes I can almost see him. At night when the wind blows, I think of what he might have been. Again, I wonder why. When I see a fire, I feel my anger rising. This was not a friendly fire. This was not a forest fire. It was a fire in the woods. This is all I am permitted to say. Okay, so this is the log lady, like the episode after she talked about a dog she once had. Now she's talking about the husband she once had. And like, you know, she's getting very introspective and very focused on, you know, things that happened to her that could have caused trauma. Um, But, you know, remembering her husband in particular probably also had to do with the fact that there's so many people kissing in this episode. Um, You know, we've we, uh, based on, how ed enormous story is allowed to pay off in part 15 of season three i'm gonna guess that um that part of this story is what lynch remembered most about this episode when writing this intro and um he wanted to give the log lady um a way to connect with her love too but then you know we have memory almost becoming visual you know when the wind blows memory can become something that has a shape and um that that seems to be you know it's like more wind uh is one of his directing techniques to um you know get more like magic out of people or whatever so it's almost like you know it's like that you add the wind you get more more real portrayal of the uh, the things going on inside your head margaret thinking about what he might have been goes along really well with what Ben and Nadine are doing you know they're they're um you know doing things over the way they might have been rather than the way they actually are even though they can recognize that you know there is a difference you know and when you live in a delusion you know what isn't in front of you physically yet feels real enough you know that's the stuff that you do as far as you know commenting about there's a fire in the woods Rather than a forest fire, a forest fire is physical, you know, sure. I mean, you know, bringing up a fire in the woods is probably due to the fire the forest fires that Earl does start with his bombs. But, you know, associating with Margaret here, you know, it's like you can get angry about what was never allowed to happen. You know, it's a negative frequency and, you know, it's a bad thing from that perspective. But, you know, it's it's totally reasonable to get there. But yeah, and and, uh, like I've said, forest fire is natural. The fire in the woods is metaphorical. And um, the fire in the woods is what Wyndham Earl rides in on, too. You know, it's like, sure, um, you know, Margaret's thinking about her husband. But then, um, and, you know, the, the husband who very likely has something to do with the presence in her log, you know, perhaps... Um, I'm not sure how David Lynch thinks about it. I know that Margaret, uh, that, um, <laughs> Catherine Coulson, uh, doesn't think that way, but, um, you know, it's like, who knows, maybe that's a certain kind of connection there too. You know, it's like, it wasn't a forest fire that did this to him. It was a fire in the woods that did it to him. And that's how also, uh, Margaret got linked to the log. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, Wyndham Earl is also kind of coming in on that kind of stuff too, you know. So he doesn't doesn't start the fire in the woods. He starts the forest fire, but he doesn't start the fire in the woods. He just rides in on that. Margaret ending with, this is all I'm permitted to say. She's basically echoing a line from the giant here. So, you know, she's remembering, she's envisioning her husband, she's dream adjacent in a lot of ways, and so is the giant, who also rides in on sounds and everything. Um, You know, it's like, are they, um, is Margaret now an aligned force with the giant? You know, it's like, does, does Lynch at this point think of Margaret as a lodge spirit? almost you know like or or at least operating on the same principles as a lied spirit because she's maybe channeling it through the log but um you know at this point in 1993 after twin peaks has died to him um she really does only become an oracle from this point forward i mean sure she has a little bit of physical attributes in season three and, you know, she talks about her physical pain and everything, but she only contacts Hawk through the phone, just like she's only speaking to viewers, um, through the video camera and it's all through her place where she's sitting still in place. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting that she's taking on these aspects of what lodge spirits do in twin peaks, even though she's a real character, quote unquote. And as far as, um, as far as that log lady intro, I think we've uh, we've pretty much wrung it out as much as we should right now. And um, yeah, it's time to hear some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey kids, it's Don Shenahan from the Cinephile History Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile History Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, welcome back. It's it's now time to look at episode 20 uh, based around those questions that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And the very first thing we're going to focus on is how is lodge lore solidified here? So I kind of talked about it, you know, the episode begins w- seemingly from space, you know, it's a star field, there's whispering, you know, Cooper, there's a, uh, you know, Star Trek bleeps and radio sounds, um, you know, and then, and then from far away spinning, uh, you know, th- spinning into frame is this fiery, you know, radioactive hazard symbol, almost, you know, it's three triangles, um, you know, made of fire. Uh, pointing in toward each other to a point. And um, you know eventually they zoom in so much that it engulfs the whole screen. And we've got Briggs saying, I remember stepping from the flames. And you know, now he's slightly visible sitting in the center of the flames. And he says, the vague shape in the dark, then nothing. Flames fading sl- uh, yeah, you know the the, fam- the flames are fading and then there's a slow zoom on Briggs. Uh, then he says, till I found myself standing by the old, by the cold remains of our campfire two days later. So, you know, going from nothing where, you know, maybe he just can't remember or, you know, non-existence, like where he's almost being portrayed, you know, it's like, um, in- instead of um, soundlessly entering his house last episode, uh, almost like he apparated there or he appeared there, like when he, he ends up appearing where the, you know, where the portal took him in the first place. So, you know, the way that Andy reappears after he's seen the fireman, that kind of thing, you know, it's like you you kind of appear where you were taken because that's where the vortex spits you out. So it makes more sense this episode than last episode, but I still like the fact that, you know, thematically Bobby and uh, Betty are the ones who kind of, uh, you know, pulled him back by remembering him in a way. But yeah, what, what's happening here in this scene is the Briggs is actually speaking from that chair in the vision. Um, and, and, you know, this chair has, you know, it's, it's built into and covered by the forested landscape. And, um, you know, then we get a distorted Doc Hayward voice. Um, you know, like there, there's like this additional lower frequency of his voice, um, underneath his voice you know it's it's not um backward then forward kind of distortion like we're used to seeing because um you know this is a different way of interacting with it and it's like we're just kind of seeing briggs's memory here and um everybody else is awake and you know so is he sort of you know he's not in the red room He's not that far away. He's only a little bit far away. But yeah, Doc Hayward says, Major, there's some new techniques that might help us break through your amnesia. And, um, you know, he Briggs is still speaking from this, um, from this foresty chair and he says, my memories are immune from regression. I can feel them palpable. The smells sensation, everything is known to me and somehow beyond my reach, you know, like it is, like it sounds, you know, it's very large spacey that way too. You know, is is like it is understood and like it sounds known or, you know, vice versa, you know, is, is understanding and knowing um, two different things that are essentially similar, yet there's nuance difference. You know, com- compare this to how Mike is uh, forward speaking to Cooper in Cooper's dream, um, because, you know, maybe he's not in the red room either. You know, this that was another time where. Um, you know, people are interacting with each other, like while still sort of being physical, uh, you know, like somebody's still being in the physical plane for a little while. And, you know, we've got Briggs having two realities at once here, you know, he's remembering and is therefore there, but he's hearing the other world where his body is. And, you know, Cooper's distorted voice cuts in. He says, do you remember anything else? And uh, Briggs says, very little, save for one disturbing image. A giant owl, pervasive. And, you know, Cooper says, giant owl? This is when we see a white flash where an owl flaps its wings from the right side of the screen to the center of the screen and looks almost like he's ready to attack. Um, and you know, then we get a flash of a normal scene where we see Briggs's neck in a profile with the triangles tattoo visible on the right side of his neck, underneath his ear, uh, where he can hear things. And you know, I got to think about a tattoo. You know, it's it's basically you know the breaking of the skin it gets under the skin, you know, it's a trauma that remains physically on the skin, you know, it's been attacked essentially. Um, it, and that means that it becomes an access point that remains under the surface of the skin after it's all over. You know, is, um, is the tattoo uh, visually representing the image and memory of Briggs's time in this, um, in this lodge space adjacent area? it It makes me feel like you know the the way the tattoo works and remains on Briggs I mean you know sure a tattoo isn't an entity, but is this kind of like how Bob breaks through Leland through trauma, but you know remains under the skin and visible if you know how to look from the right direction um you know it's it a tattoo has a very similar aspect to this and i'd love to explore this a little more with someone like emily marinelli who has the twin peaks tattoo podcast um uh, so you know emily uh, <laughs> uh if you got anything for like a mailbag episode let me know <laughs> and uh you know and, and enough ruminating on the uh, tattoo aspect but um we've got a uh um, a close-up shot of the tattoo now, you know, so it's like, you know, we, we get the, the quick shot of the owl, a quick shot of Briggs' neck and profile with the tattoo, then we get a quick shot of the tattoo even closer, and then we see a camera flashbulb that um, distracts Briggs finally into the present, and we shift where he's sitting in a chair in the sheriff's station conference room instead, and, you know, Cooper is saying, um, a giant owl, how big uh, at this time? You know, Cooper asking, you know, how big is this giant owl? How, how, how do you describe the giant owl? Uh, which, you know, is, has been seen even on the face of Bob uh, as like a masking memory. You know, it's like, how big is it? When Briggs tries to describe it, he finally comes back all the way to this world. And he says, enough to cloud my mind and memory. So, you know, I know Holland said he didn't really like it and he thought this was forced and everything. But, you know, Leland came through the ceiling tiles back to himself. And then Briggs, um, you know, goes into his memory to try to be helpful. And then he comes back to himself. So, you know, it's like they both kind of had to sync back up to where they actually are rather than where they mentally wanted to be. You know, I, I thought that was kind of an interesting balance even though Holland didn't think this was quite as effective. Now, we we see Doc Hayward holding a Polaroid of the tattoo. That's what he took a picture of. That was the flashbulb. And he's by the town map that the access guide used. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like the origins of the access guide, I'm pretty sure, has been uh, begun at this point in shooting. And we've got Cooper on the right of Briggs. You know, looking at Briggs, who's you know, f- and Briggs is just there fiddling with his hand, you know, shaky hands, almost, kind of like we'll see later on in episode twenty-seven. And you know, we got Doc just saying the uh, the the tree, you know, or the uh, the three triangular scars are behind the right ear in perfect proportion. And you know, then we see the Harry's in the room too, and he says exactly what does your work involve? You know, we're trying to get information of more exactness from Briggs as far as his backstory and like who he is in the air force. And, um, you know, he says that information as I've repeated endlessly to myself is classified. So he struggles with the things being classified. Um, then he goes on and says, though the keeping of secrets seems less meaningful to me now Perhaps there are sources of information that are so important as to transcend human need to conspire information of such weight that pertains not. Oh, God, is this meant for the soul? My soul? And, you know, this this really, um, you know, it kind of goes into Mark Frost's uh, thesis statement, A Secret History of Twin Peaks, where it's like there are mysteries that are you know meant for your soul that you know just can't be explained and then there are secrets where people in power trying to keep power conspire to keep that power by hiding truths and hiding things like mysteries and like veiling them in secrets so that you know maybe people just don't look that way anymore so you know it's it's fun that you know That Briggs is already along Secrets and Mysteries right here in this one quick little paragraph. And, um, you know, that he is also the archivist in Secret History of Twin Peaks, where, you know, he's the primary compiler and commentator uh, for much of the book. And, you know, one thing in that book, you know, that's like there are things that are so big that, you know, power and centrifuge shouldn't be in play. And that's what this is. And um, the fact that it's um, meant for Briggs's soul, that also sets up the level of Cooper's conflict at the end when he also goes through his trial now we get a little bit more plotty where you know cooper cooper says you know perhaps you should start at the beginning and you know then briggs nods and he says are you familiar with project blue book and um you know th- they say yes and then it's you know an air force uh project that was disbanded in 1969 and um you know this was a genuine project you know it's like that. that's what um you know, was looking into the UFO phenomenon and, um, you know, this is the second, um, you know, I mean, okay. It's the first thing tied into the twin peaks mythology. That's, you know, from real life outside of, you know, twin peaks. Uh, but it's the second real world thing that's been tied into twin peaks after the civil war with more to come. So, you know, like all those people talking about how season three is like waking up to our world. Um, it's, it's always had connections to our world. Um, it's just, you know, the, the way to look at it might change a little bit. And I kind of think that, you know, these connections, uh, to our world aren't necessarily saying that they're in a dream. I think it's just that, you know, there, there are connections that make us think things. And, you know, it's almost like signposts for us to put things together. Um, <clears throat> But anyway, Briggs talks about how there are those of us continuing in unofficial capacity, uh, examining the heavens as before. So we've got official and unofficial. And, um, you know, uh, Gordon Cole being able to remember the unofficial version in um, in part 17 really comes to mind when he brings up unofficial capacity where you're doing the work. It's just not being written down. It's not being uh T- you know touted as the real story, quote unquote, according to, you know, what people agree on. Anyway, in the case of Twin Peaks and, you know, the earth below. Oh yeah, never mind. That's um I, I'm going into a quote from uh Briggs here. You know, he says, in the case of Twin Peaks, the earth below, meaning, you know, it's like they're not looking at the heavens above. So he kind of backs up the fact that um you know, they were also monitoring, you know, the earth. And, um, you know, he said that um, we are searching for a place called the White Lodge. The Air Force is actually looking for the White Lodge, same as uh, Wyndham Earl is looking for the Black Lodge. It is worth noting that. Um, but, you know, they're, they're monitoring portals from the look of the future mythology and it works really well with listening post alpha being a thing that's set up too. Um, you know, even though we never see that place here and it's not even on the Twin Peaks map per se, uh that is in the access guide, you know, it's it there's room for it here as an unofficial thing that's happening um in the secrets. <laughs> But anyway, before he can go further than saying that you know it's like Project Blue Book is continuing and they're looking for the White Lodge now as an air Force uh, mission. Uh, there's a knock at the door, there's an air Fo- a guy in an Air Force uniform, and Briggs says, "I've been expecting you." And you know, Harry wants to intervene, but Briggs goes willingly under um, under the orders of Colonel Riley, and um, you know, the three guys remaining, Doc. Cooper and Harry, they're looking at the uh, Polaroid of the tattoo picture and a drip from the sprinkler goes right onto it. It's got that, that those strings like the, the, the same uh, a music cue that happens when everybody's hands get shaky in episode 27. And um, it focuses on the sprinkler head and, you know, that's a nice episode 16 callback. You know, honestly, it's like, it, it's another, um, it's another man-made thing from the ceiling, uh, just like oh, I don't know, a ceiling fan. And ceiling fans seem to have like a negative connotation, whereas um, maybe this sprinkler has a positive connotation about being able to put out the fire, uh, put out the um, the uncontrolled fire of things like Bob. Um, so was it trying to put out something here too? Because you know it only. It's only a representation of Briggs's tattoo. And that tattoo is probably only a representation of Briggs's battle with the owls before he, you know, turns to black and then, you know, reappears in the um, in the forest by the campfire. You know, before he goes on to, you know, maybe white lodgy parts of his trial. Um, so, you know, maybe that white owl was a representation of something like Bob if not Bob himself and um, you know maybe that's why the sprinkler decides to uh, you know put put a put a drop of water on it you know like you know you know it's like a dog that growls you know it's like I'm warning you you know you stay away from me you know it's like maybe the maybe the drip is like you keep your distance all right and here we are getting to the next question which is, what are we to make of the forced sexuality as persuasion? Now, I think a lot of this uh, this question has to do with um, the fact that, you know, the bad people are most often coercing people, um, you know, with force. Um, But I also kind of think that was just kind of the way it was done back then with, you know, romantic comedies. Um, You know, badger the girl enough, and eventually she'll fall in love with you. That kind of lesson. And I think that's that's part of why this wasn't seen as quite so uh, uh, troublesome back in 91 when this aired. But um, yeah, so we still kind of have to make sense of it, though, in terms of what it says about the narrative. And the first uh, the first group that we're going to look at is James and Evelyn. So um, this episode begin. I mean this the very first James scene of the episode begins with a mountains um, yeah you know, like a, a transition shot in the mountains. There's a ringing phone, and um, there's almost this baseline similar to the way Black Dog Runs at Night" plays in uh, "Fire Walk with me." Um, you know i mean there's less notes than that and it's obviously a little more um you know synthesizer based but um yeah like the the fact that it's like that and um you know ed's call i mean uh, james is calling ed at the time but um you know the electricity that goes through the phone line is a lot different than the power grid um you know it's more analog than uh than uh, the uh the way the electricity seems to go through things um you know for for powering up our computers etc etc you know it's like it doesn't go through power outlets it goes through phone outlets so it's like a different kind of signal and it doesn't have to work with the electricity that powers the house it just kind of powers itself and um i know in um season three i've got this idea that you know um the log lady calls into hawk from one different frequency to another And I kind of feel like James is calling from his negative location to a a more positive area, which would be Twin Peaks in this case with Ed uh, because of Ed and Norma. I don't know. I mean, you know, this is all a reach and it has nothing to do with what the uh, writers actually were planning at the time. But I still think it kind of matches up with Twin Peaks as a whole. You know, definitely thematically. You know, it's like you call someone on the phone to call for help, and, um, you know, you, you sometimes get it, you know, you ask for all the money in your savings account, and even though, and even though that's only 12, you know, $12, James, you know, well, whatever's left, and, you know, send a care of, care of, uh, James to Wally's, a bar off 96. Um, you know, Ed asks if he's in trouble, and then James only says, no, I can't talk about it, uh, and then he'll call soon. And, you know, that's because Evelyn walked in at the time and Evelyn calls out James about long distance because, because back then you had to pay for long distance extra special, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's like international phone calls and everything now, uh, is no big deal because of the way we have the internet. But, um, back then calling long distance, you know, sending your signal down the wires even further, that used to be a lot more expensive And a lot more special to do. So the fact that James is calling long distance, you know, maybe she's like, hey, what are you doing to my phone bill? (laughs) But, you know, she's nosy and, you know, she's like, uh, you know, James answers, you know, it's like, yeah, Twin Peaks. And she asks you, you homesick, James? And he says, no. (laughs) It's probably the most emphatic line delivery James Marshall ever gave to the show. And, you know, she gets him to tell her about Twin Peaks. What he says is, I loved a girl who died. Her name was Laura. I thought I knew her, but I didn't. I guess nobody did. And, you know, she says, I'm sorry. And um, then he goes on and says, my life used to make sense. You know, I didn't like it all the time. Echoing Ed's comments last episode about, you know, it's like, well, it's my life. It's like, I don't like it much, but I'm living it. And, uh, you know, James says, "Uh, I didn't like it all the time, but it was mine. I felt like it belonged to me. And then Laura died, and my life belonged to something else, to Laura. So that kind of goes back to the idea that Laura is this force over the whole town and, you know, could kind of tie into the whole, you know, she could be the dreamer thing. And also it could relate to, you know, the, the thing in the final dossier where you're either a you know, you're, you're either a traveler or a passenger. And um, before Laura died, he was a traveler. And then afterward, he kind of became a passenger, which, you know, means you're kind of letting the forces control you, possibly because you're in someone's you know, dreamer dream. You yeah, know, who knows? Um, and um, then James says, and no matter what I did, how much I tried to help another girl got murdered. So, you know, no mentions of names here, no mentions of other romances. So, you know, him, him falling for Donna, not in there, um, having any romantic feelings for the, another girl who got murdered. Um, no, no. Nope. And, uh, Maddie doesn't get a name either, but you know, at least he mentioned that Maddie existed. Um, you know, though, though, you got to say that the only person who acknowledged this, was, uh, said it when he was outside of town possibly outside of you know portal influence where things get covered over like the existence of maddie who knows and james says i just wanted to get on my bike and ride away which you know echoes the earlier statement that he said at the double r with maddie and she said you know don't run away james you can't run away from your stuff um And then, you know, he continues, take off, go as far from Twin Peaks as the thing will take me. And, um, you know, twice, Evelyn says, I know the feeling. And, you know, they kiss. He takes off her sunglasses and asks, you know, why do you let him hurt you? Because, you know, he he sees her bruise now. And um, instead of answering, there's more kissing while a car sound pulls up. And um, then she just says, you know, Jeffrey's leaving. I need you. Will you help me? And, um, you know, there's zero context to this, you know, he says, what do you mean? And then she just says, I need your help. And then she leaves the scene and we get a traffic light. And, you know, even, even before season three, the traffic light was always ominous and, uh, you know, it's a red light. So, you know, it's like things are not going too far in that place but you know the next time we see her transition it's after ben and Catherine get together and um her voice uh evelyn's voice comes in first before they the visuals even and she says jim the champagne's getting warm so who the hell is jim and did she ever say what kind of help or does James ignore that and he's happy to show off the new car because she's blindfolded. He has a champagne, a champagne bottle and he pops the cork when she uh, takes off the blindfold and sees the perfectly fixed car. And, you know, instead of talking about something serious, she just says, Jeffrey's gone till midnight. And uh, James answers, you know, doesn't leave us a lot of time, but I'll take what I can get. And, you know, they pour the champagne, they drink a little bit of champagne, and, you know, per, per Annette McCarthy in Reflections, that champagne was real. So that scene was, um, <laughs> you know, done done under a little bit of, uh, of uh, happy buzzing, probably. But, you know, Evelyn says, you know, James has this strong, honest face. And, you know, every time she looks at him, she can tell exactly what he's thinking. So he's still an easy mark to her. And then, you know, she comes on to him. She says, don't leave. I can think of a hundred reasons for you to stay. And, you know, then he pours out the glasses that they were drinking from, tosses them on the car seat. And then he's on Evelyn. He's got his hand at her waist and everything. And there's a lot of like male hands going towards the female waist and lower, which, uh, you know, there's it's a little bit noticeable this episode and um, not not a good look. But yeah, anyway, they they start actually like, you know, taking off some of their clothes right there on the driveway, like they're just going to have at it on the new car that James just put together. And, um, you know, the, the camera pulls back further and further down the driveway until we can see Malcolm watching from the end. And, you know, he's like really inscrutable at the beginning, but then he walks away kind of like derisively laughing at the end. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's that Andrew Packard moment of, you know, it's all going according to plan. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So it's very noir. Um, and then, you know, the next time we see the location, it's a full moon um you know it's it's between the um the time when cooper gives himself up and he gets the monologue from jean and um you know it's like all we want to do from commercial break is get back to cooper's fate but we get here and we see evelyn's shadow put on a robe and uh, she obviously was just with james and she walks out of the room and she's observing james's body and um you know she's doing it happily but then appears to regret something. So, you know, it's like she's kind of changing her tune now that she's been with James, I think. And, you know, in the hallway, Malcolm finds her, and, you know, he says, how's our baby boy? And then she says, sound asleep, dreaming of love. So, you know, we get the mention of dreams this episode. And, you know, he's on a positive frequency uh, aligned with love. And, um, you know, that dream might be changing Evelyn's tune from this plan that she and Malcolm have. But, you know, now Malcolm starts kissing her. (laughs) So, you know, one, we get the incestuous vibes back in the show, which is, oh, boy, thank you. And, um, and, you know, sarcasm, in case that didn't come out. And, um, you know, there's um, another lie revealed, too. It's like, you know, what kind of relationship do these people have? And who is Malcolm? And who is Evelyn? You know, instead of getting... Malcolm escalated in the drama you know he just says lucky 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 boy lucky 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 and it fades off into the next scene and um you know it's like I I don't know (laughs) there's not much you can make of that other than I don't quite know um where they're going with this but you know Evelyn's face this whole time that he's saying that is of a fair amount of regret but she's also going with Malcolm on this because I believe they've already committed to this thing yeah so while while Evelyn is kind of feeling like a redemption arc at this point uh, you know like that might be starting to come from her Um, we've got Josie who has completely decided to go against a redemption arc and you know she answers the door as the maid, Harry comes in wordlessly and, you know, she immediately storms away from him and removes her cap. And, um, you know, so so remember, 48 hours ago, two episodes ago, she confided much of her past to Harry and now she's a maid. And um, Harry just says, I thought you were going to move into my place and. I forget which uh, which podcast I heard this on, but you know somebody said Harry's a knight who w- isn't allowed to be a knight, and um, you know that makes me remember even in a meta way he was supposed to kind of become a knight and get a sword from a woman at the portal that uh, Cooper went into in episode twenty nine in the script that was going to tie it more to the Arthurian stuff and more to the theosophical uh, lore based around the Grail. Um, But, you know, he wasn't allowed to have that either, thanks to a little bit of rewriting. So, you know, it's like he always wants to be a knight. And whether it's characters in the story or otherwise, he just isn't allowed to be that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, Josie just says, I'm sorry. Then, you know, then she says, you know, this is my home. And he says, after all Catherine's done to you, and of course she says, I have no choice, even though she had a choice to be with Harry. You know, Josie, Josie basically used to be a strong character, but, you know, look at what fear has done to her now. The only thing that kind of seems to change her tune is all this persuasive kissing from Harry. And, you know, he kisses her neck from behind. He's got his hands around her, kind of like holding her tight like a possession almost. And, you know, he's got his hand near her neck and breast and waist and lower. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, really awkward. You know, it's like, should we really be here watching this? Um, But, you know, he's basically trying to convince her through sexuality that, you know, let me take care of you and please. And honestly, there's no difference here than Nadine forcing her affection on Mike to persuade. Um, You know, this time he's pressuring um, Josie on purpose uh, in order to say yes. And, um, you know, Josie tries to make a genuine case here where she says, I'm safe here. And if I'm here, you're safe, too. So she's changing to a little bit more of a truthful perspective at this point, which is, I think, what Josie is trying to do here with the maid thing. But then, you know, he spins her so that they're face to face, and he holds her face, she holds his wrists. You know, she, uh, she uh, he kisses her mouth, and, you know, then she says, stop, look at me, I'm Catherine's maid, I'm no good for you, so... Her persuasion is, A, she's intentionally trying to degrade herself to make her herself unappealing to Harry. And then that makes me think, B, Laura kept hurting herself so that no one else could hurt her. Um, you know, Josie's hurting herself so that Harry couldn't love her. But, you know, C, just like Laura, she couldn't fundamentally change herself enough for that fallacious logic of hers to actually work. And, you know, we've got Harry saying, you are good for me. I love you. And, you know, sure, this is mostly hormones probably at this point. Um, And, um, you know, this is possibly a sexuality plan of Josie's completely backfiring, like it's beginning to with Evelyn. But, um, you know, she gives no response at this point. And, you know, it's like everything she says with words just isn't working. And, you know, he goes in for more and then, you know, he tries to get her going and they end the scene basically against the wall and you know she seems to be giving up fighting him so you know possibly because she's done fighting herself for wanting him but it's hard to necessarily believe that because there's also his pressure so ah uh, yeah now on the more positive side we've got this inverted um this inverted way of looking at um love you know we've got ed and norma finally giving in to their love in a positive way you know they're they're um Basically, up to now, I've talked about people using love as a weapon. But, you know, Ed and Norma are finally trying to use it like a tool. You know, And they're trying to grow something here that always should have been growing, um, you know, despite all the factors around them that seem to be stopping them. You know, like we, we've got uh, Big Ed getting uh, coffee from Norma at the double R at the beginning of the episode. And, you know, she's like, more coffee. And he says, you bet. And, you know, the, the smiles are just beaming off of them. Um, and you know, he gives this bill, uh, he, he slides her the bill and on the back, it says, we need to talk underlined. <laughs> and she just says, bye for now. And next time we see her, Norm is walking from the kitchen with her coat and, um, you know, Hank's between, uh, the machines on the other side. And they're talking between these two metal things in a really narrow, um, window of visuals. And, uh, you know, he's like, Hey, Norma, where are you going? And, uh, you know, then she says, I'll have to run some errands, but then she looks down. So, you know, she's kind of proving that she's lying here. Uh, you know, he's like a little early for errands, isn't it? We still got most of the breakfast crowd and, you know, she just says just you in a kitchen full of scrambled eggs. I'll be right back. Just think of this as a test Hank. And then she walks out all the way. And of course, you know, dramatically he says, I'll do that. (laughs) And, uh, So we don't see Hank for a little bit, but we do, um, see him led in Norma and, you know, they're both talking at once at the beginning, but then, you know, he invites her in and, uh, you know, the piano version and the twin peaks theme begins, which, you know, always means, you know, this is a foundational kind of scene. And, um, he lets Norma go first. So, you know, she says, you're the last thing I think about when I go to sleep at night and the first, th- the first thought on my mind when I get up in the morning. So on both sides of dreaming, um, she's thinking about him, which kind of implies that, you know, she kind of dreams about him too, but, you know, who knows? Um, you know, she says, I know this world is going to pieces, which is the same thing that James thought when you know denying Donna and everything else back in episode sixteen before he right before he left, and um, then she says it feels designed to keep us apart, and you know I mean yeah by the writers, <laughs> uh, but then Norma continues, but we love each other, Ed. I want to be with you. So she grabbed uh, she um she grabs Ed's arm and then um, does the inverted choice that James did in episode 16. And she says, I want to be with you no matter what happens. And, you know, of course, you know, we've got the looming Hank and Nadine clouds around. You know, here they kiss. And, you know, she tries to get his attention while they're kissing, like, Ed, 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 your turn. You know, she says his name three times, and she really wants to hear, but then he just says, later. (laughs) And, you know, the, the... at least you know, the second time that she goes first, and um yeah it's yeah, it's the second time um uh there, there was another time um, outside the gas farm uh, when she told uh him her statement on things, and then, you know, Ed, you know, it's like we don't get to hear his stuff, you know he just uh reacts to her and goes with it, and um you know he he goes he goes in for a kiss regardless of what he may or may not have said. But I, I have a feeling in this case, he was probably going with you know, saying something similar anyway. And, um, you know, it's like he, they they take her coat off and it goes down to the floor and it's a scene cut. So we've got Ed and Norma probably more than doubling their lives from when they were first in a relationship. And, um, you know, it's like they, they they lived exactly the same amount of time or more without each other before now re you know, either consummating or reconsummating their, their relationship physically. So, you know, aside from, you know, the, the marriage cheating, I would say that this is probably them embracing something positive for themselves. But, you know, later in the same house, we've got Ed letting in Donna, who's looking for James. Donna gets the money. Uh, she says she's going to take it to James and then she leaves. And then immediately we've got Norma right there, um saying that she has to go and they have a lot to talk about and then she leaves probably before donna is even out of eyesight of the driveway so um and then immediately after she leaves and then hank is soundlessly right there and then he just says oh the things we do for love and you know he winds up a punch of floors ed and then you know two or three more punches to add on the floor So, you know, aside from the staging and the fact that everybody would have been able to see each other and they were probably watching, uh, you know, for their queue, um, (laughs) we've got... um you know, Nadine coming in to see all this and, you know, she savagely spins her school bag over her head, you know, like a gladiator or something. And, you know, Hank's got, Hank's got this, you know, like, like what the fuck kind of expression on his face. And, um, you know, this bag of hers clobbers his head and his body all the way straight into the couch. And, you know, then she like lifts him up and spins him in a circle and we're watching their faces kind of like when Leland spun Maddie, um, you know, it was a uh, interesting choice of a camera trick, but, uh, yeah, then, um, then she punches Hank in the same cheek three more times. Um, so, you know, Hank is, uh, taking just as much as Ed just took, uh, and then Nadine shoves him against the wall, lifts his feet off the ground visibly, and then she shoves him through her knickknack shelf and her knickknacks were absolutely, you know, they, they were mementos, um and, you know, possibly outward projections of what she couldn't work on herself, and, you know, like, she would buy all these little knickknacks, and one of them has an eye patch on it, and um, you know, it's like now, you know, it's like she's, like, putting herself into these objects, you know, like like the, uh, like those, uh, Oh, man, I I said it uh, about uh, Josie, too, because there's that um, that black ceramic uh, dog, I think, um, in the very first images of the pilot where, you know, it's like Nadine, you know, she's I mean, uh, good Lord, Uh, Josie is in the mirror kind of, you know, seeing, you know, it's like there's two Josie's, there's two sides of Josie's. And, uh, you know, like maybe like she puts some of herself in that that object. Um, you know, it's like Nadine almost definitely does that with all of these knickknacks. But now that she is working on herself, now that she's cocooning in and making a safe place for herself, she doesn't need all those trinkets anymore because those used to be as safe a place as she could get. But now she's doing it internally and she's absolutely unconcerned when she shoves Hank through them and you know completely breaks the shelf. Yeah, so she's getting her needs met elsewhere and uh, she's embracing that power literally and you know we got the super strength and we've got her shoving uh Hank through. Um and you know then she runs over to Ed who's breathing heavy and trying to get up and she's like Eddie can you hear me? You know, it's like you know listening to the sounds <laughs> kind of uh, and you know, it's like, Nadine and, and then she just goes on and does like a hairy kind of thing and says, Nadine's here. Don't worry about a thing, baby. Nadine will take care of everything. So, uh, the people with the power are trying to, uh, help and, or control the people around them. And, uh, you know, then we got Ed doing this great groan and it, it cuts to commercial break. So it's like sort of comedic and, um, definitely thematic. And, you know, speaking of Nadine, we've got her doing the same kind of thing as Harry to Josie. Yeah, it's like we're we're back to the kind of uh, coercion that sexuality will bring. And, uh, you know, we've got Mike reading the paper at the counter and, you know, up comes Nadine. And uh, <clears throat> she says, you know, good morning, Mike Nelson. And he says, oh, Lord, which I used to quote regularly. I I um, I hate this scene but I like when they completely forget the origins of how they started and, um, you know, become a couple there. They, um, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll see how conflicted I am about that in a few episodes. Once they finally do kind of become good for each other, sort of, but, you know, she wants to share a soda or a pie, you know, with two forks. And, um, you know, he, he starts talking to her, you know, Mrs. Hurley, Nadine, So he shifts from the name that he knows her as to the Nadine that she wants. I mean, to the name that she wants to be recognized by. And, you know, then he says, "I, you know, clearly that he wants to be by myself. So she doesn't hear him. You know, she just turns that into a negotiation with the counter of what she wants. And she's like, "Okay, meatloaf. You know, so it's not about the food she's figuring out because he'll establish his boundaries very clearly here. And he says, I don't want to talk with you. I don't want to walk with you. I don't want to see you. I don't want to know you. Is that clear enough to understand? Or do I need a court order to get my point across? So, you know, very clearly delivered, very clear about the seriousness too. I mean, bringing in court, you know, it's like, you don't, you don't get any clearer than that as far as how he feels about their proximity. But, you know, Nadine, she's in her own little world. She's in her cocoon and she's like, okay, well, now I'm going to explain my full position because yours isn't quite correct is what's implied. But, you know, um, she's kind of looking at this like, okay, you share now I share. You know, it's like, um, Ed, 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 it's your turn now. You know, it's like she's she's waiting for that, even though Mike isn't giving that to her because he's got a boundary. Yeah, Ed and Nadine are a little bit inverted. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, she says, Mike Nelson, you are the most handsome boy I've ever known. And I would really like it if you and I could go out on a date. So that's her boundaries. And then she like goes in for a kiss and she kisses him all the way down onto the next chair. And um, yeah, negotiation. And, you know, this kiss that she gave him is just that needed bit of proof of her position you know, rather than respecting his boundary. Hmm. Uh, But anyway, then, you know, afterwards, she just says, you know, I'm sorry. Sometimes I just can't help myself. So maybe she did hear him and she's just on this wants-based frequency that, you know, just doesn't give a shit about people. But yeah, so anyway, she gets up And the camera stays on him, but the door chimes like she's left. But then Mike gets up, and he looks around winded like, what the hell was that? And, um, like, I know some people think, you know, it's like, maybe he's, like, changing his feelings. Like, wow, that was a good kiss. But I kind of think it was more of, like, wow, my boundary just got walked over as well. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I would consider i mean sure you know okay mike is a piece of shit in season one especially i understand that um but you know you still don't necessarily need a moment like that and you know for that kind of you know alpha male bullshit that he is um that was quite a moment of trauma probably you know somebody else with more power than him uh taking control of him which is probably um you know maybe him getting a dose of his own medicine quote unquote. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe that's why he decides to change a little bit and, um, you know, kind of fall for an 18 or whatever it is. We never actually get to see why, um, you know, who knows? And maybe this being a traumatic moment for him, maybe this is how he kind of starts going into a delusion of his own where he needs to cocoon and, you know, he starts kind of matching up with Nadine that way. And that's why they resonate on a similar frequency for a while. But yeah, so anyway, we've got Nadine using love as a weapon and, um, you know, then we've got Ben and Catherine to talk about because there's a little bit related to love frequency with them too, even though Ben's in his delusion. Um, you know, he, Ben comes out of his delusion for Catherine, essentially. I mean, he doesn't do it for Audrey. Um, earlier in the episode, uh, Audrey sees Lucille, uh, an assistant um, of Ben's, coming out of the office crying, wearing a headdress with fake uh, ketchup blood. Uh, she's got drumsticks and a tom-tom and an armful of paperwork. And uh, she's probably like, I can't take it anymore. But she's silent because she's an extra uh, SAG rules, etc. She can't have a line to explain herself and um you know audrey wants to know what happened to her and we've got you know ben with the southern accent and you know she goes in and tries to get to ben you know she pushes through things that are propped up against the door um you know he's playing with his miniatures from the floor and the uh there's a lot of plywood around there's a lot of unfinished landscape there's um you know, train set grass all over where Ben is, you know, it, it, it's basically a construction and, or, and an art project. Um, at the same time, we've got supplies that are visible because it's an active, uh, construction site and, uh, you know, Ben's still in his Confederate coat and Audrey goes up to him and says, daddy. And, you know, eventually the third time she says, daddy, uh, she snaps him to attention, but it's, Possibly because he touches, uh, she touches his arm at that time. He kind of says why he doesn't have time to pay attention to her at that point. And he's like, "There's a war going on, darling. A war between the states." And um, you know, Daddy says, "Yeah," you know, or I mean, she <laughs> she says, "Daddy, I think you need some help." And um, then he's like, "No, I'm all right, darling. I just need a little time." And you know, we're we're left, you know, like, is this a metaphor? Like, you know, does he actually? um respond to her same meaning you know it's like where he just needs to do this for a little while and then he can come out but then he says this is an important day and she's like yeah wh- this is the day that you and i save the business and you know you gotta ask you know why is audrey helping now after all the heroin etc uh, one Eye jacks the uh the um near assault that he gave her um you know why? Why is she helping him here? Because it's happening to her too. You know, it's easy to snap back uh, into her trying to save the business, regardless of their past. Because Ben tanking the business tanks her lifestyle. You know, and tanks her entire life, and you know her standing in it. You know, the the uh, the ability to get to money. You know, it's like whatever. You know, it's like all her tools are tied up in her father not going batshit crazy. But, you know, the the show isn't necessarily agreeing with that uh, because, you know, back in episode 17, you know, she's probably just rebooted because, you know, she came in as customer relations to talk to Cooper. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) It's kind of complicated. But, you know, Ben's on a different page than that anyway. You know, it's like he brings her in close and, you know, instead of saying something to respond to what she just asked him about the business, um, he just says, you're standing on General Stewart. And, you know, he's invested in the fake thing, not the real business, you know, and then, you know, he shows he shows this little Stewart figure, uh, General Stewart, uh, more dignity, you know, brushes it off. And, you know, then then his own daughter's humanity at this point. And, you know, and then he starts calling in a loud way, you know, it's like calling for General Lee and, you know, Jeb's coming and, <laughs> you know, he's role playing right here, uh, LARPing. You know, Audrey steps through the construction battlefield to a phone on the floor, you know, it, which seems, you know, it, it rings true to me like how um, Ed called um, Ed called on Nadine's suicide attempt from the floor very near to his, their their person. So it, it is a reflection of that sort of thing. And uh, she's calling Jerry Horn um, all while all while Ben is narrating the battle. And, you know, later, you know, she doesn't call Sylvia. She doesn't call (laughs) anybody else. You know, it's always someone who Ben might actually listen to. And, you know, then later on, we get the drums and the waterfall transition back into this. And, you know, Ben still um, hasn't come out of the delusion and he won't come out for Bobby either. Um, You know, he's up up in this uh, high part of his office, you know, like a southern gentleman. And, um, you know, he's like way above Bobby and gives him a sword and, you know, he's basically trying to get uh, Bobby to role play with him to, um, you know, like surrender basically. And, you know, Audrey pops in and, you know, when, when Bobby finally says, you know, like victory, hooray. You know, so like he, um, he endorses, um, the fact that Ben's in a delusion when Audrey happens to look, but instead of going, you know, like now that Audrey's not looking, um, Bobby, as General Meade, instead of accepting, um, instead of offering unconditional surrender, Bobby drops his sword and his head and says, okay, I'll tell you what, Mr. Horn, I'm going to go talk to President Lincoln first, okay? And... so you just wait right here and you know, and then he starts over to the door and you know, it's like, I'll get back to you on this whole surrender thing. You know, it's so I don't want to keep the president waiting. And, <laughs> and uh, Ben's great in the senior. You know, he's like, he's calling, you know, so afterward, you know, and he's got these hands like, where's my sword. <laughs> um, But, you know, Bobby and Audrey are out in the hall and, you know, he he says, you know, got some good news and got some bad news. The bad news is your old man just bought a condo in Flip City. And the good news is he's about to win the Civil War. And, um, you know, um, plot thread alert from earlier is like, is this the business that they're in together? Save the horn. And, you know... um, Audrey makes it explicit. Uncle Jerry's coming in on the next plane. Sylvia is unmentioned and Jacoby's coming tomorrow. And uh, then she says, you know, I think daddy needs an injection, which I think is the way, you know, you'd talk about, um, you know, stuff like Thorazine or whatever. You know, it's like things that are really going to knock somebody out and, uh, get them sedated. But then as they walk away, Catherine watches them walk away and then sneaks in. And this is when Ben does come out of his delusion you know she comes on screen um and then we see um you know like when when we're in his room you know it's like ben's lighting his lantern and the troops all have their little lanterns already lit so he's he's prepared you know he's taking care of his troops before himself uh (laughs) in the delusion and um you know catherine walks in and you know Ben, without any accent, as she's walking in, says her name. You know, Catherine. So you know, it's like he's snapped out of it for the very first time in a very long time. And um, you know why? Well, when you see the point of your trauma, when you see the source of your trauma, you recognize it, and you um, you defend yourself in a lot of ways. You know, it's like, and the one who inflicted the trauma wakes him from the delusion where he's trying to be in a safe space. And um, you know, then he says, you know. Come here to gloat, haven't you? To celebrate my demise? You know, is he, uh, you know, is, is he thinking of his old life as dead? And, you know, that that's why this other um, Civil War general self can kind of use his body for a little while. You know, the way that, like, reincarnation cycles kind of are, like, thematically resonant even when characters don't die. Like, they just kind of reboot themselves but anyway, like, you know, it's like now that he mentions his demise, you know, and then he shifts over to his southern voice and says, well, you go ahead. You laugh. You have defeated me as I have general need. So, um, you know, then Catherine, you know, without missing a beat, she um, she kind of goes with, you know, she doesn't call him out on, you know, shifting back into this delusional voice. Uh, She just says, it's true, I did come to gloat. You double-crossed me, you tried to kill me, and I wanted to bury you so deeply that future generations can unearth you and exhibit your remains. Slimy rat bastard Americanus, do not feed. But, you know, then she plays with his hair, and, you know, the, um, I I think, uh, the the song is, you know, Truman and Josie, it's like this uh, slinky little saxophone tune uh, starts to play. Yeah, and then she just says, do not trust, and, you know, in the um, in his southern voice, he's like, I suppose that I'm not that trustworthy. So he can admit truths as the southern general. <laughs> he can take care of his troops as a southern general um, and admit truth um, because that's a safe space. Um, but, you know, Catherine is into this. You know, it's like, why is she so into this? Why is she not calling him out? Well, why did she become a Japanese businessman for so many episodes? Um, It's equally appalling material uh, that they're both kind of trading in. You know, there's appropriation, there's the slavery, there's all this stuff. And, you know, Catherine's okay with going with it. And, you know, then she says, and despite everything I know about you, I find myself wanting you. But then Ben comes out again, um, you know, it's like the appeal of love in this case, or, you know, like a, a more like, you know, primal, you know, love appetite kind of frequency. Um, ben comes back out as he's presented with this and says, you can't be serious. And <laughs> then she's like, I want you, Ben, horrifying as it seems I can't escape it. You make my body hum, kiss me, General Lee. <laughs> and <you> know, <laughs> she's giving into her wants here. And I think she's kind of happy to fall into the delusion. And, um, you know, this sort of allows him a certain forgiveness and, you know, she's giving him permission to continue to cocoon and, you know, continue this delusion that, um, he's in. And, um, And then just kind of like how Mike shifts over from Mrs. Hurley to Nadine, she says, you know, kiss me General Lee. And, uh, (laughs) you know, so she's giving him permission to stay in the delusion. And, um, you know, what does he do? He opens up that crazy thing thick hefty red coat of hers and stuffs his face into her chest and says on to victory and i think piper lori laughs for real in that moment and um it's it's a really fun interaction between those two i mean it's awkward as hell but it's fun now we're gonna shift over to the next question which is how is jean renault right and wrong about cooper you know, all, all the Cooper related scenes begin at the sheriff's station and, you know, there's this phone and Ernie is apprehensive about setting up the buy and until Denise calls him gun shy. And then of course, Ernie brings out his bravado and he's like, Ernie Niles is as bold as can be. Let me at him. But, you know, as the phone is ringing, you know, then he begs him not to make him do it as they dial. And, um, I, I love James Booth's squirreliness as Ernie Niles. It's really fun. Um, But, you know, then he begins speaking to John, um, as the scene cuts. So presumably the buy is set up. And then later on we see at the station again, Ernie's complaining while Hawk is taping up a wire to him. And of course Hawk has to do a little bit of, uh, Uh, foreshadowing where he's like, you're sweating like a pig, Mr. Niles. And, um, you know, we see Harry cleaning a rifle behind him and Ernie babbles some bullshit about a war story about the 49th parallel. Um, you know, him being heroic, you know, in a bygone era that doesn't exist. And, you know, this, this heroism of his is just like how, um, Ben Horn is doing all this bravado as a, uh, a general in a war that he wasn't part of. So, you know, it's like, uh Ernie is lying because he changes his story about where he uh where he served a couple of times. So, you yeah, know, he's like making stuff up to kind of uh what, grow courage or whatever, and, uh, and Ben is doing the same thing. It's it's interesting how it fractally works even with Ernie Niles. Um <clears throat> but then, you know, Cooper brings him back and says, "I want you to focus on the here and now and um, you know, uh repeat the instructions to them." So, you know, um, Ernie, you know, explains, you know, take Denise to Dead Dog Farm, introduce her to Renault, uh, take him through the buy, complete the transaction and get the hell out of there. And, um, you know, Cooper says he really wants to be there, but he lost his enforcement franchise, which leads Harry to deputize him. And, you know, to, uh, the Bureau's lost, the, the Bureau's loss is my gain it's a number 13 badge which you know i'm assuming it's there to say you know it's like oh oh hopefully this doesn't mean it's not going to be a lucky operation but also you know it's like are there only other are, are there only 12 other deputies in total uh <laughs> it's like i know we don't see very many of them but um you know it's like huh a small town Anyway, Ernie goes fearful for a bit, you know, and it's like, don't make me do this. I'm a coward, a CPA and, uh, you know, exact reversals of his bravado and cowardice, da, da, da. uh, he snaps back and, um, you know, then Denise enters as Dennis and it really does feel like a disguise, even though it's basically Duchovny with maybe a little bit more face makeup, uh, than usual. But it's really cool that, um, you know, it's very apparent that, um, the DeKovny look is actually a disguise rather than the Denise that we all know. And then it goes into a trees transition. But the next time we see dead dog farm, it's from the outside and, you know, it's like, there's the binoculars frame and we find out Cooper's watching the sting from the outside. And, you know, we hear Ernie, Ernie talking about sweating and, you know, he tries to blame it on a, a war condition. Um, but then, you know, his shirt is smoking and the line goes dead. And, uh, and James and uh, James, good Lord. I would love to see him at this thing. Um, Jean and um, and Mountie King come out with guns drawn and pulled on uh, Ernie and Denise, who they're holding hostage now. And, uh, you know, Jean shouts Cooper. And, uh, you know, that Cooper does present himself here. And he basically says, you know, release the hostages and, um, you know, they'll they'll kill you if you don't. And, um, Jean begins his whole thing about then everybody dies. And <laughs> then Cooper proposes a trade, you know, Niles and Bryson for me. Uh, and then he drops his gun and walks forward there. There's absolutely nothing stopping John and, and King from shooting Cooper right then, you know, besides the shootout with the, um, with the people that also have guns trained on them. But, you know, we've got, um, at this point, you know, we don't even know if it's an official trade happening or, you know, if John agrees to it. But, you know, Cooper keeps walking toward it and then we see Lucy getting paged over the horn by Hawk and um Harry is seriously training a gun on the house with, You know, as it goes to commercial break. <clears throat> and after one quick little scene to the marshlands after the commercial break, it's back to Dead Dog Farm at night. And we've got Andy drawing a gun, um... At the car door, which is really invoking his heroism in episode seven when he um when he shot Jean Ren- uh, when he shot Jacques Renault um <clears throat> to save Harry. And then Hawk is at the other door, uh training a gun in the same way. And then Harry comes over to get an update from him. Uh, you know, Cooper's been moved to the center room, da da da. And um it shifts inside to um to the scene you know, inside where Cooper is and, you know, King's at the window and he's talking, you know, more deputies, sharpshooters. Um, you know, so does he think when Harry arrived that Harry's a deputy too? (laughs) Is it a, is it a sick burn? (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, he, he looks over to Sean and says, you know, let's deal and run. Um, but you know, John, he's like leaning his head on the wall and he's being very like method at this point and very cool scene for Michael parks. Um, <clears throat> you know he's like asking you know, it's like well will they let us run agent cooper and cooper says no so do you think they will deal no <laughs> so you know like you know cooper his only offer is basically to suggest surrender and then he says okay and then the king john says but first we must decide how to give up quietly uh, yeah, or uh, we first first we decide to give up quietly or to kill him. Cooper says, you know then we both die, and then John says, I know, and Cooper basically asks you know straight out at this point is my- is my death so important to you? Then we get John doing doing his thing here with probably one of my favorite monologues in the whole in the whole series, honestly. Um, Yeah. then he says, you know, my two brothers died. I hold you responsible. So, you know, there's a family connection to him that he lost. Um, And he says, you know, before you come here, Twin Peak (laughs) was a simple place. My brothers deal dope to the teenagers and the truck drivers. So we get references um, to both little Denny Craig, who, um, when the bell rang, he couldn't get up. Uh, you know, teenagers uh, taking drugs and uh, truck drivers, as in, you know, like what Beulah says, a world full of truck drivers, um, uh, and they're all associated with drugs. So, like, this theme that I'm gonna go into hard about drugs is like very related in a uh, repeated uh, kind of way. So, that's the kind of world that Jean is a part of, and where he lives basically uh you know then he says you know when i jack welcome the businessman and the tourist. quiet people live a quiet life um so you know under the surface in the dark the uh the negative powers like jean can go go on with uh you know they, they could proceed because they're not illuminated with the light um then he says then a pretty girl die which, you know, second reference in the same episode to Laura Palmer uh, by someone in the shadows this time, you know, not enough. uh, You know, it's like just because Jacques might have talked about Laura Palmer doesn't mean that Jean would, you know, care at all about that. So, you know, it's like Laura's being mentioned by someone not directly in her circle this time. But, you know, she's the catalyst to to these problems that Jean is imagining. You know, and then he goes on, and you arrive and everything changed. My brother Bernardo shot and left to die in the woods. And you know, that was due to Leo, which probably would have been unrelated. Um then he says a grieving father smother my remaining brother with the pillow, napping dead. Uh and that's on Leland and possibly Bob. Um then, you know, you know like is is john really not giving responsibility the, to the people who kind of live in the dark and just do their thing or um as uh, as adam from diane podcast put it um can john smell the survival's the survivor's guilt um on cooper you know can can he sense cooper's doubts um, and then, you know, he lays it all out on Cooper and, you know, makes him feel even more responsible than he actually is. You know, then, then he says, you know, it's like, so to me, the quiet people, they're quiet. No more. Suddenly the simple dream became the nightmare. And, um, I gotta, I gotta say, you know, Cameron crane over at 25 YL has this article Jean Reno was right. How Cooper brought the nightmare. And, um, you know he he puts it he puts it this way in his article. Jean Reno was right. Dale Cooper brought the nightmare with him, not in a uh, not in a way as straightforward as Reno was likely thinking, but in a way that goes much deeper to the heart of what Twin Peaks is about. We all love Dale Cooper, or I presume we do. So the interpretation of the show may be hard to swallow. Yet, in light of the events of the return, I think the case can be made that he is the one responsible for messing everything up, even more deeply than Bob. This is in part because of the hubris of the one you might want to call the Good Dale, and through the machinations of the one that I have always referred to as Mr. C. So you know, we're, we're officially getting ahead of ourselves, but this is one of the most compelling bits of theorycraft that I've seen um, in and out of 25YL. But, you know, it's more of a happy accident of foreshadowing in this particular case. You know, as, as Crane said, um, you know, this isn't straightforwardly where Renault was coming from here. It just kind of uh, fractally reflects the future. And, um, you know, I'll definitely be keeping an eye on this article as we get closer to season three. But uh, what he's talking about, I think, was caused from um, Cooper's entrance into the Red Room in um, in episode 29. Here, I think um, Renault is just kind of inverting things because Jean is from the real nightmare. You know, like when you live in the nightmare, it's dark, it's your world, it's your frequency, it's your home. And if it gets revealed, you know, the light comes in and starts shining on your home and there's no more real estate to work with as the light takes it over. I I forget, it it was either George Saunders or James McBride in a Book Exploder episode. And um, they they basically said, you got to imitate being the sun and shine light on everything and what grows will grow and what dies will die. And, you know, Jean will die in there, um, uh, if, if there's too much light and so will people like Leo and, um, and, um, Leland, you know, it's like the, those people that were in the dark, you know, we're just being that way. It's like, you know, you don't blame a predator for like killing a sheep or something because, you know, it's like, you, you, you got to do what you got to do to, to eat and survive. So that's probably why Jean blames Cooper for coming rather than the people who actually killed his brothers. But anyway, he goes on and says, so if you die, maybe you will be the last to die. Maybe you brought the the nightmare with you and uh, maybe the nightmare will die with you. And, you know, it's all floral and everything. And, you know, uh, Mountie King basically says, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I do know we've got a damn problem here. And if you're not going to solve it, I will. And, you know, it looks like he's ready to do a shootout through the window. But this is when um, Double R Denise starts coming up. And, um, you know, Jean's like, let her come. She's just a girl. So, you know, there's Jean Renault proving again that he lives in the darkness. And, you know, he's 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 got this proclivity to believe in both of his appetites. You know, it's like, there's food, there's women, you know, (laughs) it's like, let's eat, (laughs) Uh, you know, rather than what's in front of him. You know, it it kind of, um, kind of helps you understand the nuance of how uh, Renault really does see this world. And um, I don't think he can possibly imagine in a knee jerk way that the goody goodies who, you know, trade in the light, you know, who trade in shining uh, light on secrets, you know, might also deal in subterfuge. Or, you know, maybe it really is just about the appetites, you know, revenge, food, women, you know, none of these angles really focus much on him consider life expectancy. So, you know, he enjoys Denise's legs when she gets there, you know, the uh, the the presentation of the dish, you know, but um, he does kind of begin to wake up to what's actually happening because, you know, he looks at Denise's face finally and says, you know, it's like, don't I know you, but you know, he's not quite there. But you know, by then the skirts hiked up high enough to reveal the gun to Cooper. You know, thank God he was on the correct side of uh, of the room, or uh, Mountie King would have been the one who'd see it. <laughs> but uh, you know, Cooper sees the gun, he takes it, and he shoots Jean. Uh, he shoots Jean um, twice. You know, it's like two coats, two bullets. Uh, uh, and then you know, Denise is like um, knocking in the King and punching him out. Um, but then the third shot to Jean was a click. Um, so it was only loaded up with two bullets or there was a misfire either way. Uh, oops, (laughs) but you know, by then John falls over anyway, before he can reach into his own coat and get a gun. And, um, you know, Denise is punching out King and, you know, uh, we get Cooper saying, you know, quick thinking, Denise. And, um, you know then he then denise uh says you know it was just my legs thanks uh thanks sheriff truman it was his idea and you know all all harry's i mean all cooper says is harry s truman and um you know the only thing harry says to it is well sometimes you gotta improvise and um then basically the scene ends with hawk checking on renault and saying he's dead And um, that reminds me of a thing Michael horse said in reflections, um, where he says parks is a pretty tough ass guy. And of course a big icon to me, there's a scene where they got him and he's dead. I forget who was directing, but they said, Hawk, you kind of kick him uh, to see if he's dead. I look down and parks looks up at me, like kick me and I'll rip your throat out. And I said, I'm not kicking Michael parks. He's dead. Trust me. And, um, yeah, that, that <laughs> I just love Michael Parks and what he did with Jean Reno, and I'm so sad to see him leave already. But, um, you know, here we are. We got a great monologue out of him. And, uh, yeah, so um, the, the scene from there transitions. Uh, you know, it's like there's moonlight shining on a river, and it's um, a transition over to the Johnson house, which leads me to ask my next question, which is, what does it mean that Earl's veiled arrival works hand-in-hand hand with electricity. So, Wyndham Earl shows up by name um, kind of near the beginning. It's, um, you know, it's it's when Andy and Dick in the Trench Coat and Fedora um, decide to infiltrate the orphanage to dig into Nicky's records to find out what happened to his parents because, you know, they're giving in to the fears and the superstitions, and that frequency um could work on the dream logic that, you know, um didn't end up with them in jail for being caught breaking and entering into an orphanage. And, you know, Andy's still being able to be a deputy, even though he uh <laughs> he broke in broke into an orphanage while basically on duty. You know, while they meet up, Lucy goes around the corner to look for them, but instead she's found by Cooper, who um you know, she says there's no mention of steel or Wyndham Earl's name anywhere in any periodical that she was reading. And, you know, all she says to Cooper is, I'm sorry. And, you know, he says, it's okay. <laughs> and then they separate. And it's, it's a fairly cute <laughs> moment between those two, actually. Um, but, you know, then everything changes after the Jean Renault um, ordeal. You know, we find out where Earl is showing Cooper his next move right there in the stations. You know, the guys get back. It's, um, it's a dark lobby. And that's where Lucy explains in detail from from the beginning of her, you know, learning about what happened, when it happened. Um, you know, she says, you know, a voice on the phone said there was a bomb planted in the woods. Uh, didn't say which woods. Um, which means, you know, was it a forest fire or was it a fire in the woods? Um, that's what that makes me think of the log lady intro and, you know, in the woods, you know, which one was it? It was the physical one. Um, but all of a sudden there was this huge explosion and the lights went out and then she talks about there being two fires and one was at the power station and, you know, why does the phone still work then? Well, you know, you didn't need um, the power lines electricity to power your phone back when, you know, phone lines were their own um were their own circuit. And for some reason, those worked even when the power went out, unlike the way, you know, the modern phones have completely scrapped the phone lines. And now they're hooked up to whatever our broadband is hooked up to, which will go down in a power failure. So, uh, yeah, we don't, um, we don't always evolve forward per se. Sometimes we step back a little, uh, but anyway, that's one of my own pet peeves. Um, so yeah, the electricity or battery dependent power has gone down. Um, Hawk checks on the sheriff's station generator outside and, um, you know, she's talking still about how um, you know, the transformer that blew up and um, you know, she worried about a fire starting. And um, you know, while while she goes on to explain more in um, you know, overly specific Lucy detail. Um, you know, Cooper is going back into Harry's office with a lighter uh for light, you know, and we're talking real fire coming from that lighter. And, you know, he sees a vagrant's arm. Pointing in a chess game, and it's Wyndham Earl's next move, as he puts it. But that's not all that was happening right then. You know, sure, Earl um, you know, created a plan where he could sneak into the sheriff's station without anybody seeing him. Yeah. But um, you know, there there was more stuff going on after the power went out. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, that's when Jean died. But it's also when leo woke up and we see over at the johnson house right after um right after john dies you know it's it um well i mean we're we're not going to go there yet because we've got to talk about um shelly and bobby and everybody first um you know the first time we see shelly in the episode and really leo you know we see a disgusted bobby hearing shelly say that's a good leo like a baby parent And um, in an earlier episode, I misclaimed about an earlier scene. Um, I think this is mansion Amick's favorite scene between these three characters. Um, Anyway, she says, it was your turn to feed him, Bobby. And, you know, he says, I got practice. Football season is over, Bobby. Baseball, our national pastime. And then, you know, she's like, fine, you can help him when you get back. And he says, I'm not coming back. (laughs) So she's mad at him. And he says, you know, you're looking at Ben Horn's brand new boy. Does the, uh, do the words golden opportunity mean anything to you? And, um. You know, it's like he, he's happy to have his big break. And, you know, does she think he doesn't have anything better to do than give Leo Johnson a bubble bath? And, of course, Shelly is pissed right here. Um, you know, she, she retorts, you know, doesn't she have anything better to do? And, you know, of course, this is not that I can think of. And, you know, that's a very earned slap for Bobby Briggs. Um, you know, so he's not all the way back to being on a positive frequency yet. You know, he... He, uh, he still has work to do. <laughs> and, you know, this is definitely Bobby and Shelly's low point. Um, you know, Bobby feels like he's g- in good with his dad and his work dad. And, um, you know, literally hasn't even been seen here for episodes. So he's disconnected. And, you know, he's not ready for parenthood. So he walks out and he slams the door. And, um, you know, Shelly just shouts for Bobby while Leo stares in her direction. And, you know... Leo blinks right here and, um, you know, she yells, she flaps her arms and she's like, God. And, um, you know, Leo's, um, food bubbles out of his lips, you know, the stuff that he hasn't swallowed yet. So, you know, he sees Shelly being in this essentially, um, parent, you know, like, uh, you know, she, her new guy, are in the middle of like real life, and Leo's watching her basically cheating on him and you know next time we see the house, it's right after Jean is shot, and you know we hear rockabilly music playing you know coming and going with the lights because the power is going out it's coming in it's going out it's coming in power fluctuations and um you know the the uh the electricity of the house is totally um you know disrupted and um you know, this wakes Shelly from the couch, um, you know, there's five power drops and we see Shelly finally noticing that Leo's bed is empty and there's a motorized clown toy in it. And then we see Leo's empty chair and then Leo's there with the party hat and cake on his face. And he says, Shelly menacingly. And, you know, she screams and the lights go out and it goes to credits. But I kind of think, you know, that Earl's bomb disrupted the the physical electricity, but I think that also disrupted electricity in things like, oh, I don't know, maybe Sean was overconfident and decided to go in for his appetites when he saw Denise bringing food as a woman. Um and you know, possibly this is when Leo woke up too, you know, the electricity completely um You know, it's, it's like a head injury, you know, the head injury disrupts the electricity that's going on inside people's heads. And, you know, that's when you get memory loss or delusions taking root or people waking up from delusions. And, you know, this is about, you know, as waking up from a coma as you're going to get, because it's literally what Leo did. And, um, you know, he snapped awake for real and, um, i I find it interesting that um you know the the one who woke up wasn't Nadine, it wasn't Ben Horn, it was somebody on the negative frequency like Earl, and you know Leo of course, becomes Earl's henchman, you know he he um he sure, he fights uh Shelley and Bobby next episode, but after that, he wanders off into the forest and then almost heat seeks right onto Earl. An electrical outage caused by Earl essentially, you know, woke the perpetrator of the explosions henchmen. And, you know, I mean if if a if a coin flip can lead Cooper to Dead Dog Farm, um you know, I, I could see that, you know, Earl being tapped into what he's tapped into could get him a henchman this way, too. You know, because Wyndham's just as tapped into the energy of the woods right now as Cooper is kind of into his own tuition. And, you know, whether whether Earl's trying to tap into the power or that power is manipulating him and their machinations leading in episode 29 to get Cooper into the lodge. You know, it's like, it all depends on which way you feel like the lodge is planning. But, um, Earl does seem to be tapped into it enough to know how to, um, get into the red room, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, he, he almost even seems to know people in there. Yeah, like, I wouldn't be shocked if, like, you know, he's putting something out into the universe to get Leo here. But, you know, however it is, it's a nice representation of, you know, both kinds of fire being in play here. Even if it, on its surface, seems like it's all just physical world bad guy stuff. And that's about where we're going to stop today. So, here we are at the sign-off. You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter as long as that's going to last and john underscore the underscore peaky on instagram visit ruminations radio network for additional great shows such as brevity box and 25 yards later and join all the hosts from ruminations radio network myself included on our discord channel ruminations radio cafe find any number of classic 25 yl twin peaks articles and content on many other tv shows at 25 years and tv obsessive.com and uh, join Twenty uh, Five YL's new Discord server, Twenty Five YL, a Twin Peaks, disc, uh, a Twin Peaks server. <laughs> Uh, We're just starting it out and growing it, and it's going to be a good place, too. And if you want to be part of our next Mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Podcast at gmail.com or, you know, ask any questions uh, over the social medias. And we'll see you next week as we give you a seasonal gift or two. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. They kind of deepen and expand, expand. Deepen and the universe, expand. The, show the, universe the, show in. the show takes place in. Uh, they'll really dig it. This is a, a gift to all the fans.